short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. people I think is good people. They are they have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Welcome to the Cold War, episode 191, Ray. Uh, the Korean War part something. something. Korean War part two, episode three. Uh, wow. or one. Wow. One. So episode two. Right. Two. Korean War part two episode two. Because we did I'm, one episode last it. time, I think, yes. after the Richard Lim debacle, which I'm still getting emails about, by the way. Oh, well, yeah, live and learn. I wouldn't. <laughs> Just a wave on um, the ocean. Yeah. Korea hangs like a lumpy phallus <laughs> between the sprawling thighs of Manchuria and the Sea of Japan. That's true, actually. One of my favourite lines from William Manchester's uh, biography on Douglas MacArthur, right? which i got to tell you, um, is a great read. It's funny. It's one yeah. of these books that has been sitting on my bookshelf for 30 years. Mm-hmm. I, I think I picked it up you know, in my early 20s when I started to get interested in history, and I probably skimmed it but never sat down and really, really read right. it, right? Right. Uh, I've been reading it this last week, and fuck me, that guy can write. He's like the Tacitus yes. of uh, modern history stuff. He's awesome. He takes you for a ride. <laughs> yes. Korea hangs like a lumpy phallus between the sprawling thighs of Manchuria and the Sea of Japan. Like Quite lumpy phallus. Why not? Just... <laughs> Anyway, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't is there matter. another kind? I is there another kind? I don't, I don't know. Um, I'll let you know. I'll, <laughs> I'll take matters in the hand and I'll let you know. I don't know. <laughs> um, so I'm going to do. I'm going to. We're going to talk a lot about MacArthur uh, yeah. for the next couple of episodes because uh, he's now the man in the hot seat. But um, an hour after Truman's announcement, right, of the American military commitment to Korea, Congress approved a bill. Extending the draft by 314 votes to four. Damn. The draft. They're extending the draft over Korea. Not going to fight the Nazis. Not going to fight the Japanese. It's over Korea, a civil war, and a country which about two weeks earlier... Uh, various senior American politicians had been saying was not really important to the United States, wasn't um, part of their yeah. strategy. Yeah. Now they're extending the draft, forcing. Right. For, like, let's be clear on what the draft is. Yes. It's, it's, it's forcing through threat of violence mm-hmm. your citizens to go to war. It's the state protecting itself at the sacrifice of its own citizens. The draft, like it's a, it's a, it's a very, it's one yeah. of these um, Barry and Stan masterpieces. We just call it the draft. <laughs> right? right? It's just the draft. Yeah. It's like a draft. Yeah, it's like a it's lottery. Like a, it's, 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 
It's a cool breeze coming right. in under a door. You, do you feel that draft? I yeah, do. it's nice. Yeah. It's refreshing. A draft is refreshing. <laughs> Unless it's a cold day, and you go, oh, "Where's that draft coming from?" Yeah. But let's call it what balanced. it is. Right, right. It's it's uh, you're forcing your citizens yes to go to their deaths. Yeah, and, or to kill you're, you're at the very least to try to, to kill, kill yeah. other human beings. You're forcing your citizens yeah. on the threat of violence. Now, you're not going to execute them if they don't go, but, you know, the, the, the punishment for avoiding the draft, right. jail. Yeah, you're locking them up uh, if they avoid the draft. Yeah. Or if you're Muhammad Ali, you know, you lose your heavyweight uh, championship belt. Right. Um, so it's, it is a, it's a threat. It's a threat of legal punishment if you don't go and try to kill other people mm-hmm. and or, uh, you know, put your own life on the line. And this, right. is, a, this, is, this is happening in a democracy that, it, well, fuck me. Did you see what Biden said after his uh, Putin meeting? No, I missed that. Fucking your president, Democratic Great White Hope. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Said... Uh, I don't have the exact quote here, but I can I, I, I can find it on uh, uh, my Facebook in a minute. But because I posted a thing about it, he basically was he was talking about Putin, and he he said something like, uh, "Here we go. Mm-hmm. Um, how would it be if the United States were viewed by the rest of the world as interfering with the elections directly of other countries?" Uh, maybe he's a comedian. Maybe. Biden's a stand-up comedian, and y'all just weren't getting the tone that he was laying down. Because that that statement is absolutely ridiculous. What would it be like if we engaged in activities that he engaged in? It diminishes the standing of a country. Motherfucker, we know... I had uh, Dove Levin on this show a couple of years ago who did uh, an extensive report that uh, demonstrated that the United States, let me pull up the figures here, the United States intervened in 81 foreign elections between 1946 and the year 2000, while the Soviet Union or Russia intervened in 36. Uh, A 2018 study by Levin found that the electoral interventions determined in many cases the identity of the winner. The study also found suggestive evidence that the interventions increased the risk of democratic breakdown in the targeted states. Biden, though, it's two part. Number one, Biden gets up and has the temerity to say what he said, A. B... He didn't get immediately laughed at by the journalists. I want to do a version of the presser where he says that and then there's a pause and then just the entire the uh, bank of reporters just, yeah, yeah, break out in laughter. <laughs> Good one. Good one. No, nice High one. Five. Come on, Come on, President. Yeah, Somebody throw a shoe at this Are man. Are you fucking anyway. kidding me? And and like the 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 supposed leftist media in the United States just hasn't went, just gone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ape shit going, what the fuck are you talking about, you dipshit? We do this day in, day yeah. out. Yeah. Uh, did- you did it in Ukraine. You personally just- overthrew the, the the government of Ukraine. He was bragging about it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
Here's, here's my take. We can meddle with countries for decades in the dozens. We're the good guys. We're trying to make the world a better place for us. Um, Russia was messing with us. That's the no-no. Mm. That don't don't mm. don't do that. So they're yeah. the bad guys. They're the bad guys. Do as we say, not as we exactly. do. How, how long has Putin been in charge? Twenty years. Yeah, give or take. Something like that. Okay, that's a lot of elections. Mm. But the but the point is, uh, Biden should not have said that because that's exactly what we do, and we spend billions of dollars. Tri- or I don't know how much we spend a lot of money doing mm. it, and people die. I saw somebody on Twitter in response posted the front cover of Time magazine from like 1990, whatever it was, to right. uh, with a picture of uh, Boris Yeltsin on it. And it was all about how America uh, got Boris Yeltsin elected. Right. And, you know, three cheers for us. <laughs> we uh, we <laughs> determined the president of Russia. Yeah. That's not meddling. That's and, of course, yeah. you, you, you meddled. To get Boris Yeltsin elected, right. and then when he left, he gave power to Vladimir Putin. So America really got Vladimir Putin right. in the position of power. Anyway, it's so a we created story. the jihadist extremists, and we put indirectly Putin in charge. Okay, yeah, just checking, and created ISIS. Just anyway, uh, let's uh, yeah. move on. So uh, the point I want to make here is the draft here is uh, a pretty brutal thing to yeah. have in a democracy, but it doesn't it doesn't get talked about a lot. It's one of those things that we just go, oh, yeah, it's just the draft, right? Yeah, yeah. The draft in this country is it's kind of like race relations. We know they're there. Don't really feel comfortable talking about it. Pray to God we never get you know when it when you're in that zone that age range. It never happens to you. As far as the Korean War, um, I think I I found this somewhere. 1.5 million men were drafted versus the 1.3 million that volunteered. So that's a lot of people to take up off the streets. And so congratulations, you are now fighting for democracy, mm. you American mm. hero, son of a bitch. So. Yeah, you know, when it, whenever you're talking about World War Two with uh, particularly Americans, you yeah. often hear uh, them go, "Well, sure, Stalin helped defeat the Nazis, but that's just because he forced his people to go and fight them. Like he just right. threw bodies at it. Yes, he fought people. He forced people with threats of violence to go and uh, you know shoot at the Nazis or die. Uh, yeah, that's." Yeah. Called the fucking draft, motherfuckers. You had it, it in America too. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <clears throat> On June thirtieth uh, of that year, nineteen fifty. Obviously, this is like uh, what uh, uh, a week or so, a week and a half after. Uh, what, what, what was June the date 25th. of the uh, June twenty fifth? Okay, so it's five days. Right. <clears throat> On 30th of June, the Military Assistance Program for Korea passed the Senate by 66 votes to zero. So my point with all of this, apart from the draft, is that uh, American politicians uh, loved it. Couldn't wait to get involved in another war in 1950. Let's go. Let's get it on. We genuinely saw ourselves, and maybe I should be more objective and say, the Americans at that time saw themselves as truly standing up to communists in, in some ways for the first time. Like, we're really going to do this. There's been a lot of talk and there's been a lot of speeches and articles and books, but this time we're really going to stand up to them. And here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to fucking have another China on our hands where we spend all this time to try to adopt this country, take them to our bosom, and lose them anyway. No, we are going to defend 
democracy. Could you just could you do Jewish. that little that movement again? I like the way you the mimed bosom. that to the bosom. <laughs> You're like you really got know. into that. You yeah. really you really well, committed to that. <laughs> well. What is the type of acting where you you literally become method acting? I was method. Method, yeah, method. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I saw yeah. that. Wow, yeah. it was crazy to me. Like how you just went straight into character there, all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> you totally. Yeah. That was like Pacino esque, man. That was <laughs> that you. was astounding. <clears throat> I, I do have to say this real quick before you go on. Um, <clears throat> you're talking, and you're going to get into this, so I won't ruin anything. But all of this is going to be put in MacArthur's hands. There's, there's, he's not a perfect person. We'll go into all that. But I wrote this line down about Truman and the administration better watch out because MacArthur is not a team player, not unlike Tony Stark. He is only interested in pleasuring himself. So again, we're going to find out that this guy's got a massive ego. And, and you play. What's he got to do with Tony Stark? No, just because Does he like to jack they, off. They both like to play whatever pleased them mm. was good mm. anything else was bad but Mac- MacArthur that's like times a thousand and, and we're going to see that as do the you first think, part of the war plays out do you think out. Tony Stark ever jerked off while in the Iron Man outfit does that did he have like a nanotech yes uh, well, I know he had the scrubbers and the cleaners I, I, if he didn't he was an idiot <laughs> I'd be flying high and literally flying and jerking off all in the suit I mean that's fucking think, Christmas did you think he had a nanotech f- flesh? Uh, what flesh do they call flesh? Flashlight. Flashlight. Flashlight built in. Yeah. If not, you've just improved that Why not? suit. Yeah. Oh, you've just improved yeah. that suit. Yeah. yeah. It's got rockets, but does it got a flashlight? Huh? Huh? Yeah. I, I'm not yeah. interested. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile. Meanwhile. While all this was going on in yes. Congress, uh, General Douglas MacArthur, living in his little palace in Tokyo, was actually considering retiring from the army and taking yeah. a job as the chairman of the board of Remington Rand, the typewriter manufacturer who, the next year in 1951, came out with the Univac line of mainframe computers. They'd offered him a $100,000 salary in 1950 to take the job as right. chairman of the board, right. which is a do-nothing job. Like you just right. go play golf most right. of the time, basically turn up to a board meeting every now and again, which would have uh, been a, a massive uh, jump on what he was getting as yeah. yes. general running yes. Japan and running Asia, the emperor of Asia, basically, basically. as what he was at the time. Yes. Um, on the 31st of May 1950, just before all of this went down, I read an interesting story. Mm-hmm. He banned a communist rally in Tokyo. Now, for people who don't know, look, look and I don't know how many people outside of America, particularly people you know, younger than us, really know much about MacArthur and his role, but you know, he was he was uh, ruling Japan yes, at the literally. time there as like a literally. like a what uh, what would you call him? Like a shogun. Potentate. He was the shogun, yeah, shogun. Yeah. of yeah. Ju- yeah, uh, of Japan. Um, on behalf, they were they were the United States was occupying Japan, and yes. he was ruling the place basically as his own personal fiefdom. Mm-hmm. On he on the thirty first of May nineteen fifty, a uh, couple of weeks before this went down, he banned a communist rally in Tokyo, which was being organised by the Tokyo People Democratic Front Preparatory Committee. Right. They had 100,000 people who were going to turn up. They were uh, protesting the uh, occupation of the country. 
Um, but he banned it because it conflicted with the U.S. Army's Memorial Day services that were happening on that day. Right. So, yay for freedom. Hey, we bring you freedom, but you can't have a protest because we're going to have our own little celebration that day. <laughs> and yes, this is Japan, yeah. but it's U.S. Nice. Memorial Day services take precedence in your over the Japanese yes. people protesting your occupation of their country. Eight Japanese were arrested right. for beating up five American soldiers during a protest Ooh. about the banning of the march. Right. But I, I thought this was interesting just to show that not all Japanese people were submissive to the U.S. occupation. Mm-hmm. There was a communist, uh, you know, active communist organization over there. Right. Because you do read lots of stories in uh, Manchester's biography and that kind of stuff about how the Japanese people kind of loved uh, MacArthur because he wasn't as harsh on them, they thought, as he could have been, right. as they probably would have been oh, if yeah. they had oh, yeah. been the victors. As you know, they, had they been were during the war. Yeah. 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 You know, their approach was far more brutal. He was, uh, and I'll get into some of the details on this, he was uh, brutal on one hand in some ways, but yeah. also quite lenient in, in other ways. He was, yeah. He's an interesting guy. But some of the Japanese people loved him. Like, there's lots of stories of that. He was like treated like as a celebrity by some Japanese people. Right. But there were also others that were furious that they were being occupied, as they still are. There's plenty of protests uh, going right. on in Japan to this very day, furious at the continued U.S. occupation. What did we say recently? You got fifty thousand troops there, something or something? Like I think. Yeah, yeah. You think they might be used in to it Germany? By now. Well, it's in post. Yeah. Uh, American troops used to it by now. You would, couple, two generations. I mean, get over the yeah. I'm not sure as of now, but yeah, according to uh, Wikipedia, there's about fifty thousand uh, U.S. troops still in Japan. Yeah, and they go, well, it's not an occupation. No. We're just uh, yes, we're helping. We're- you make the right decisions. Right. Let's just put it that way. You're we, welcome. you know, we, we, you made some bad decisions once. Right. Never again. And uh, Never we again. don't want you to do this. So we're here to help. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, they want us there. I love it when guys like Markham will say, well, no, listen, you know, you ask them, they want us there. Yeah. Yeah. Sure they do. Yeah. I know the, yeah. the pimps of the hookers. Want us there? I don't know about anybody else, but just real quick, and I, and I won't ruin any of your stories from MacArthur, but I just want to give that some context. So, MacArthur um, was a celebrity in his own mind, very regal, took himself way too seriously, always trying to outdo his father. I, I, won't, I won't ruin anything, but basically, when he comes to Japan, the Japanese, and you said this a second ago, the Japanese are like, you know, considering the things that we've done. They're going to bust our ass and, and we're never going to uh, be an industrialized nation. Because remember, Morgenthau wanted to take Germany, carve it up into like five different things and turn it into a bunch of farmers. The Japanese thought that that was going to happen to them, but even worse. So MacArthur comes in and because he's so regal and he's and he takes himself so seriously and he's actually, like you said, a celebrity, it's only someone with his aura with his dignitas that can actually even come close to the Japanese emperor that the Americans allow to, to obviously not die, be hung or anything like that. So it took someone as regal as MacArthur to come in 
scare the shit out of the Japanese because they didn't know what to expect. But like you just said, he did, he, you know, they, he made them redo their constitution, get rid of their army, uh, change some things. But then again, he did take it easy on them. And, and pretty soon by, um, by 1950, they're running themselves. He's still there. He's still got his troops. He can do whatever he wants. He can, he can override anything. But the Japanese are up and running as far as the government. So it takes someone with his prestige to make, to, to, to walk that fine line between I'm going to punish you, but we're also going to take care of you because guess what? You are now a partner in the Cold War with, you know, against China and Russia and they're right over there. So that's why we're there. But, but he, he, the, a lot of the people in Japan held him in awe. And like you said, there was, there was a smaller uh, percentage of people that wanted him and the Americans out. But when you lose a war, you don't have a say. And so that's why we're still there today. But the point is, there was a lot of people who were impressed with him, like the Americans, and thought he was capable of doing, handling any great task. And now here's a great task for him to handle. What was that quote? If you lose a war, you don't have a say. You don't have a say. Motherfucker. Hmm. Hmm. And that's reality. I'm sure the Geneva Conventions doesn't word it like that. But when you lose, you lose. For all time. That's it. You have no say in anything. No rights. Until my troops leave, bitch. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. The Japanese were the Japanese were scared. They were like, you know, America could do something. Like, if they wanted to, they could do something really, really brutal, like drop two nuclear bombs. Oh, right. There's always yeah, a third. they did. Bitch. Do that, There's yeah. always a third. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Now, uh, from his appointment uh, running uh, the, the Korean operation in June of 1950 until he was finally fired by Truman, mm-hmm. Ten months later, MacArthur's view was that it was the historic destiny of the United States to destroy communism on the battlefield. Sure, sure. Not, uh, you know, uh, let's pit our two economic systems uh, separately against each other and see who survives. Which people are Uh, happy. Communism had to be destroyed. Yes. And... It was his view right. that it was America's monopoly on nuclear power that was going to enable him to do that while right. it lasted. And they had to make the most of that monopoly while it yeah. lasted because eventually the communists would catch up. They'd already caught up, but he didn't Test really bomb. know that at right. the time. And it's also um, his destiny. It's not just America's destiny. It is his personal destiny to do this. He is the hand of God, the right hand of God. And he literally kind of believed that he was the tool of God. Yeah. He was a rabid Christian. Um, yes. There was, a, there was a great quote I found in the Pittsburgh Sun-Telegraph. Right. This is from July 17th, 1949, a year earlier, um, where somebody was being interviewed by somebody in Tokyo, part of SCAP, was uh, being uh, interviewed in, in Tokyo by this mm-hmm. journalist, and he said... General Douglas believes that God spoke to Moses, but he knows that he speaks to MacArthur. <laughs> yeah, Moses might have been right. I don't know, but let me tell you why. I talk to the big man every Monday morning when I'm on the crapper. I know what I'm talking about here. MacArthur believed that, yeah, this was now a war, as did most of the American leadership at the time. Right. It was a, it was a war between American Christian democracy 
and atheist communists. That was that was the big battle. This was a religious war in the mind of MacArthur, as I think it was with you know a lot of the American political and military leadership at the time. Uh, Walter Lippmann, famous journalist and political influencer that we've talked about many times. Mm wrote that it was hard for Americans to feel secure in a world not governed by Christian concepts. I could see that. I mean, it's sad. It's a sad commentary, but I think it's true. I think it's still true today. Yes, I agree. Yeah. But I think it's important to understand when we're looking at the Cold War, and, mm-hmm. you know, we've... T- how many years have we been doing this show? Uh, we've, we've gone over this so many times. Yeah. But this was, in the minds of American Americans, uh, a religious war. It was Christians versus the dirty, dirty atheists. <laughs> yeah. It really, when you boil it all down, it was a battle right. between, well, it was the American elite and, and, the Amer- and the British elite and the Australian elite, whatever, worrying that if, well, if our people decide they want communism, then all of our wealth and power goes away. We can't allow that. Right. Secondly, it was the church leaders getting behind that, saying, well, you know, if, if communism becomes popular, religion goes away, we can't have that. Right. So it was framed in the minds of many people as a war of... It was a religious war. It was a yeah. it was a jihad. It was yeah. a Christian jihad against the atheists. I, can I just say real quick, can, if you could go back in a time machine and go back to 1950, and it's not unlike the war... Uh, the story we did, the war on drugs, to go back to the 50s and 60s and to talk to some old white guy in his in his 50s or 60s or whatever, and he knows beyond anything that marijuana will kill you, it will make you go insane and you'll probably stab someone. I mean, for these people, and that's the same thing with the religion and the, and the Christianity and our way versus the communists. I mean, they knew it down in their bones. They knew it was absolutely true and there's no way you can convince them otherwise and so with that kind of i don't know if you want to use the word passion or fervent belief or whatever but now you've got this threat in in, uh, korea so for them truly their entire existence is now being threatened so they are on board and they and they're just very thankful that they've got someone like macarthur who their champion who got him through one tough spot and now he's going to get him through for another. But this, for these people, that's all that stuff you were just talking about that you and I laugh about for them. It was absolute gospel. No pun intended. Yeah. Yeah. I just find that amazing. Uh, now MacArthur, when you read biographies on him, they talk about him being a 19th century kind of a guy. Yes. Yes. Um, he's kind of like, yeah, he saw himself very much like a, a Napoleon mm-hmm. or a, even a Caesar. I mean, Manchester's biographer on him is called American Caesar. Exactly. Also the name of a great great Iggy Pop album, by the way, if you've never heard it. <laughs> really good album. Oh, you need to get uh, Chrissy to call you Podfather, like MacArthur had his wife and everybody call him the General. Just fucking, good morning, General. How are you, John? This is his wife. Chrissy needs to show you some fucking respect. And I'll I'll tell her. I'll fucking tell her. No, I won't tell her. I'm afraid of Chrissy. Mm. Me too. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) You too. Um, You know, what he really believed uh, his mission was, was to defeat... Um, Muscovite adventurism, as it was referred to in one book. Uh, 
Uh, and he would have felt that way whether it was the communists running Moscow or a czar running Moscow or mandarins in Peking versus the communists. Doesn't matter. It was... It was this uh, 19th century idea of the grand chessboard, dividing it up. Uh, America's manifest destiny is to rule the world, and mm-hmm. he was put there by God to enable the United States to do that. Right. He also didn't believe in the concept of limited war. He was a big believer in Thomas Aquinas's view of a just war um, in... Uh, Manchester's biography, he says that MacArthur believed that if the battlefield was the last resort of governments, then the struggle must be waged until one side had been vanquished. Damn. It's not just... uh, like a Nazi. Yeah. Total war. Total war. Total war, and not just defeat the other side, but the total obliteration Yes. Wipe them from the map once and for all. Yeah. Um, I want to read the opening of Manchester's book because uh, for people who haven't read it, sit down, strap yourselves in because this is just fantastic. He was a great thundering paradox of a man, noble and ignoble, inspiring and outrageous, arrogant and shy, the best of men and the worst of men, the most protean, most ridiculous, and most sublime. Hmm. No more baffling, exasperating soldier ever wore a uniform. Flamboyant, imperious, and apocalyptic, he carried the plumage of a flamingo, could not acknowledge errors, and tried to cover up his mistakes with sly, childish tricks. Yet he was also endowed with great personal charm, a will of iron, and a soaring intellect. Unquestionably, he was the most gifted man-at-arms this nation has produced. He was also extraordinarily brave. His 22 medals, 13 of them for heroism, probably exceeded those of any other figure in American history. He seemed to seek death on battlefields. Repeatedly, he deliberately exposed himself to enemy snipers. Uh, First as a lieutenant in the Philippines shortly after the turn of the century, then as a captain in Mexico, and finally as a general in three great wars. So let's just point out there that uh, he was part of the uh, invasions and occupations of the Philippines and Mexico. Yes, Um, yes. So, again, part of the whole Manifest Destiny, literally on the front lines of Manifest Destiny. At the age of 70, he ordered his pilot to fly him in an unarmed plane through Chinese flak over the length of bleak Yalu. Nevertheless, his troops scorned him as dugout Doug. His belief in an episcopal, merciful God was genuine yet he seemed to worship only at the altar of himself. He never went to church, but he read the Bible every day and regarded himself as one of the world's two great defenders of Christendom. The other was the Pope. For every MacArthur strength, there was a corresponding MacArthur weakness. Behind his bravura and stern Roman front, he was restive and high-strung, an embodiment of machismo who frequently wept. 
He yearned for public adulation. His treatment of the press guaranteed that he wouldn't get it. After World War II, he was generous toward vanquished Dai Nippon and executed two Nipponese generals whose only offence was that they had fought against him. He emerged from the 1940s as a national hero in Canberra, Manila and Tokyo, but not in Washington, D.C. He loathed injustice and freed Filipino patricians who had collaborated with the enemy. He refused to send an expedition against the Hakbalahap insurgents on the grounds that if he were a Philippine peasant, he would be a Huck himself. <laughs> Continuing his sidestepping to the left, during his years as American viceroy in Japan, he introduced the Japanese to civil liberties, labor unions, equal rights for women, and land reforms which were more thorough, in the opinion of Edwin O. Reichauer, than Mao Zedong's. Mm. Meanwhile, he became a cat's paw for reactionaries at home. The army was his whole life, yet at the end of it he said... I am 100% a disbeliever in war. In his campaigns, he was remarkably economical of human life. His total casualties from Australia to VJ Day were fewer than those in the Battle of the Bulge, but his GIs, unimpressed, continued to mock him cruelly. His paranoia was almost certifiable. He hated an entire continent, <laughs> Europe. Europeans could not understand why. I mean, listen, fuck me. I mean, <laughs> that's, what a, that's probably yeah. the greatest opening to any biography I've ever read, i got to say. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's just, <clears throat> that's magnificent writing, right? I mean, and, and he sounds like a fascinating, uh, fucked up guy. Yeah. And if I could just react, oh my God, there's so much I want to say, but if I could just react to one thing that you said or that you read, and you probably can answer this better than I can, I don't agree that MacArthur was fearless. He was, if you didn't know any better, fearless. He was very brave. He did put himself out there, even when he was an old guy in World War II, was, uh, a little halfway over, he still, he still exposed to himself to danger, but... I really do believe that it wasn't courage so much as in he was so in love with himself and he was so sure that he had a great destiny that he it wasn't his time to die. So it didn't matter that he exposed himself in World War One or in the Philippines or World War Two. It wasn't his so he wasn't going to die just because of his belief in himself. And as Max Hastings writes, maybe there was I don't, either way, whether you agree with it or not, it got him through those moments. And it did impress the hell out of some people. Um, so was he brave? I don't know. But there's also a good chance that he was just so sure of his destiny that he couldn't die, that he risked his life anyway, just knowing nothing bad was going to happen to him. That's not, that's not normal. Well, it reminds me of Napoleon mm -hmm. and Caesar and uh, Alexander. We've talked about all these guys who all did the same sort of thing and yeah. would expose themselves to danger while their soldiers were trying to pull them back and stop them. Alexander going over the wall and getting a fucking three-metre <laughs> arrow in his lung. Right. Caesar wearing his red cape yeah. Come at on me. the battlefield, Come his general's yeah. cape. <laughs> yeah. Napoleon crossing the bridge. Um you know, these guys did that, and, and I think in every one of those cases, it was the same thing. They believed that they had a destiny right? and that it wasn't their time, and they were right um, until it was their time. <laughs> Alexander died. Right. 
young. Yeah. Uh, Caesar died younger than he should have. Caesar didn't even want a bodyguard. Don't need a bodyguard yeah, if I'm they good. want to kill me. Let I'm them good. kill me. Yeah. So they did, and he was like, "Oh fuck! Why, why didn't I have a bodyguard?" Oh. Um, <laughs> My bad. But it's it's kind of it's it's kind of survivor bias, right? It's yeah. like um, you know when when you read stories, uh, and I have these conversations with my son Hunter all the time, right? Uh, like you know he's because he wants to go to Hollywood and be a big famous actor, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and 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 I'll, and he's like, I go, well, you kind of need yeah, that's great, and you should do that, but you should have like a plan B. And he goes, no plan B. Yeah. Look at look at Schwarzenegger. Yeah. He said he had no plan B. These guys, these guys. I go, yeah. You're talking about the ones that had no plan B. The 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 point zero zero one percent that had no plan B. Exactly. And you know we're lucky enough to pull it off. The other ninety nine point nine 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 percent that said they had no plan B and are now waiting tables. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's survivor bias, right? You like You're only looking headshot? at the ones that survive. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So if Macarthur had felt that it wasn't his time to die and had been killed uh, in the Philippines right. or in Mexico or wherever, then yeah. we would never know his story. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I, I'm not trying to take away from the man. There, He was more of a symbol than an actual great warrior. We don't have to, to debate that because this is not the show about that. But it's it's important to know his flaws. And like you said, one flaw is that he believes in total war. The other flaw is once war is joined, the two swords are crossed. The politicians need to get the fuck out of the way. It's for the general to decide everything, everything that happens because it's a war. The general's in charge. When the war is over with, you politician's going to be in charge. Now, as you can imagine, Truman's not going to be crazy about that. And we can go into that later, but Truman's got very limited objectives MacArthur's got God on his side, so there's no such thing as limited objective. So he's going to go balls to the wall, and it's going to it's going to piss off a lot of people. Let me know when we can talk about the hookers. That's the only reason oh. I'm here tonight. So yeah, yeah, J- just the other side of MacArthur that makes him human. That actually makes me feel, you know, a little sad for him. But but it shows his flaws. Yeah, the hookers, and uh, I wanted to talk about the suicide. Yes. So he wasn't mentally well. Um, no. There's another, there's a recent American study of MacArthur that um, revealed some details that weren't previously known right. about his private life. Yeah. Uh, when he was the chief of staff for the US Army before the Second World War, mm-hmm. um, lots of threats of committing suicide, lots of prostitutes. Uh, although. Right, platonic. He, had, he liked have the platonic relationships with prostitutes. Yeah, stroke my ego. And I'll let you talk about that in a second. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, during bouts of depression, mm-hmm. he would call prostitutes up to his suite and then get them to tell him what a great guy he was. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sounds very Trumpy, really, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. But in Michael Schaller's biography of MacArthur, the Far East in general, uh, one of MacArthur's aides, T.J. Davis, tells a story about he was on a train journey across the U.S. Mm -hmm. with uh, MacArthur at one point. MacArthur was going on about suicide. Uh, um, He said, uh, as we pass over the Tennessee River Bridge, this is MacArthur speaking, as we pass over the Tennessee River Bridge, I intend to jump from the train. This is where my life ends, Davis. Mm -hmm. Davis replied, happy landings. Uh, 
I'm calling you bluff, motherfucker. Yeah. yeah. And it says, MacArthur got the message and never talked about killing himself again. Uh, so talk to me more about prostitutes, Ray, your favourite topic. Thank you very much. Well, yeah. Um, prostitutes and farm animals. But the point is, this guy needed his ego stroke. I believe in right. preparation for this show, right. you did a lot of research. I did do. With prostitutes, yes. you had to bring them in yes. and, and the try farm and... animals. Yeah, it's method, it's method yeah, acting. Method. You had to get <laughs> method acting... Method research. I need to understand. Yeah. I need yeah. to understand yeah. MacArthur exactly. from the inside. Yeah. Can you come into my hotel room and tell me how wonderful right. I am? Let's just say when I do research, I go balls deep. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's not really <laughs> a long distance, but the point is, it's long for me. It's all relative. It's all relative. I don't want to talk about it anymore. But no. But actually, uh, Admiral uh, Yamamoto. Speaking who, of a lumpy phallus, yeah. What? <laughs> Admiral Yamamoto, who planned, generally mm. speaking, uh, Pearl Harbor, the attack, he would also spend time with geishas, and they would they would uh, sing him songs, and they would laugh at his jokes or whatever. And and but that was just him having a good time because he was married to someone he didn't love. I didn't get that sense with uh, with uh, MacArthur. Literally, MacArthur would talk, and they would be amazed by him. They would laugh at the right time. They would, ooh, ah, or whatever. And he would, and he just basically needed a massive ego stroke. Now, maybe after all that was done, he went and whacka, whacka, whacka. I don't know. But the point is when you on a, even if you just do it, say seven times, I don't know, you, you hire a hooker and you, no, 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 keep your clothes on. I just want to talk about how great I am. And I need you to nod in all the right places. And I'll get off on that. I don't, we don't need to touch. I mean, that just tells you there's something going on in the guy. There's something missing, but he constantly needed that validation. And that's why he was such a performer. Uh, he would he would purposefully carry himself a certain way, uh, interact with people, talk a certain way. He was trying to impress everybody constantly. I don't know about his mother, but I do know that he had daddy issues. His daddy won a lot of awards and did a big job, uh, had a moment of heroism in this, uh, the American Civil War. He was always trying to outdo his dad and just, but almost like Alexander, that times a thousand. And so he was a very complex person. There was a lot of good in him. There was a lot of weak points, but now he's 70 years old. He's already been through what should have been his defining moment, surviving the Philippines attack. And now he's got to do it all over again with Korea, and he's now seven, 70 years old. And uh, is he going to be able to pull it through again? Because the American people certainly thinks that he can do it. One of the things I didn't really understand about MacArthur mm -hmm. is um, how much of a narcissist mm -hmm. he was and how he saw himself as, uh, like, really... Standing above everyone else, like the rules Literally. were made for the rules didn't apply to exactly. him. The rules were made for lesser men. Right, he was a god amongst men. Right. Um, he, I'm going to read more from Manchester's uh, book. It may be said of MacArthur, as the Durants said of Napoleon, that all the qualities of Renaissance Italy appeared in him: artist and warrior, philosopher and despot. Unified in instincts and purposes, quick and penetrating in thought, direct and overwhelming in action, but unable to stop. Tocqueville put it well. He was as great as a man can be without virtue, and he was as wise as a man can be without modesty. <laughs> Perfect. Most of all, however, MacArthur was like Julius Caesar, bold, aloof, austere, egotistical, willful. Yeah. The two generals surrounded themselves with servile aide-de-camp, remained long abroad, one as proconsul and the other as shogun, mm. 
leading captive peoples in unparalleled growth, loved history, were fiercely grandiose and spectacularly fearless, and reigned as benevolent autocrats. They were also possessed of first-class brains. Sophisticates in the last quarter of the 20th century are disdainful of military intellect, but great captains have always been men of genius. Goethe thought that Napoleon's mind was the greatest that the world had ever produced. Lord Acton agreed. That century rated warriors higher than this one does. Walt Whitman wrote, Knowest thou not there is but one theme for ever-enduring bards, and that is the theme of war, the fortune of battles, the making of perfect soldiers. Bonaparte's analytical gifts and his phenomenal memory were recognised in his time as signs of his massive cerebral powers. MacArthur matched them. The man who wrote the Japanese constitution, like the creator of the Napoleonic Code, was clearly a prodigy. His knowledge of history and law was astounding, and he never forgot anything. Once he reminisced, blow by blow, about a boxing match he and a visitor reunited with him after 47 years had watched the evening that they had parted. Meeting John Gunther in 1950, he picked up the thread exactly where it had broken off of a conversation they had held at their last meeting in 1938. Damn. He knew the history of every Japanese unit he faced in the field, where it had fought in China during the 1930s, its role in the conquest of Malaya, the reputation of its commander, and intelligence appraisals of its morale. During a planning conference for the invasion of Honshu in 1945, a briefing officer said that the surf on a certain beach was treacherous. Certainly, the general said, I remember seeing it when I came out to Japan with my father in 1905. Then he reeled off title details. The incredulous officer, checking them, found them correct in almost every particular. (laughs) That's, That's impressive. Oh, and, and just to add to it, if anybody needs just another element to help you picture MacArthur, he was someone who was very, I won't use the word anxious, but very energetic. He couldn't sit still very long. He had to pace. He'd love to pace. Even when he was making his great escape um, from the Philippines, from Corregidor Island, he ended up pacing in the little torpedo boat and the plane that he was in. So he couldn't sit still. He had this uh, favorite worn down um a house coat that he wore with the slippers and he would just pace for hours. But don't get me wrong, while he was doing that, he was thinking. But just picture someone who's got tons of energy, who can't hold still, and, and, he, and he thinks he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. The problem with all this is, like we said earlier, you've got a democracy, the United States, you've got Truman who wants a limited war. Look, I just need you to push the bad guys back over the line. After that, stop right there. And MacArthur's pretty much, and he didn't hide this. He's pretty much, yeah, that's not how I roll, son. I kick ass all the way. I put my foot all the way up their ass because that's what God wants me to do. So as you can imagine, there's going to be a lot of tension between MacArthur and his uh, civilian boss, Truman, and we know who's going to win that one. Now, I want to talk about his pipe. Okay. Do you know the story about his corn cob pipe? I know I tried to put a picture of him with it on Facebook and it got banned for promoting smoking. Uh, but please. <laughs> no, really? really? I, I, had to, I had to find a oh, picture of him. The, so anyway, I'm like, Jesus H. Christ. Anyway, uh, tell me about his pipe. Yeah. Well, he famously used to, you know, always be seen with this corn cob pipe. It was made by a company and is still made by a company called the Missouri Meerschaum Company. Oh, nice. 
uh, based in Washington, Missouri, mm-hmm. the corn cob pipe capital of the world. <laughs> Um, it's been around. It's been around for over 150 years. Still housed in its original 1884 red brick building. Not bad. Um, MacArthur had been a longtime fan of corncob pipes, and actually designed his own. Of course, he did. With all the schematics and like, sent it like Leonardo, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, in his downtime, right. He, uh, he sent the schematics to this uh, Missouri Meerschaum company and uh, they made it for him based on his own schematics. Wow. Of course they did. So that's why he would always uh, be seen in photos with it because he designed it he himself. Very proud of it. It's not just a pipe. Yeah. It's my pipe. I'm the creator. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I, so there you go. There's a there's a letter I've got in front of mm-hmm. me here um, uh, that he sent to the vice president of the company. This is dated uh, 10th of March, 1959. Right. Dear Vice President Otto, thank you so much for sending me the pipes. It was thoughtful and generous of you, and I deeply appreciate it. With the passage of time, I find each year brings increased enjoyment and satisfaction from my corn cob pipe. With best wishes, most sincerely, Douglas MacArthur. Right. Uh, yeah, so they would send him. He, he had a whole like collection of right. these pipes, and uh, they would send him free pipes all the time. Um, so there you go. I, and I, honestly, uh, I want to try one. Yeah, why not? So Nelly the rapper had a Band-Aid on his face. MacArthur's got the corncob pipes. Same thing. Everybody's got their shtick. Napoleon. What Napoleon? Yeah, Napoleon had a hat. He had a big hat. Hitler had the Charlie Chaplin mustache. Yes. Uh, you know. Yeah. So can, um, let me just ask you yeah. something real quick. Based on all the, I know you did a ton of research to write your book, uh, Psychopath Economy. When you hear MacArthur only had people on his staff. Um, I'm sure they were competent. That's not the problem. But he only had yes men on his staff. He would never have anybody challenge him. He would never tolerate whether it's his wife, his kid, his, his subordinates, whatever. But when you hear someone, if you take the name MacArthur out and, hey, there's this guy, pretty smart, pretty intelligent, pretty energetic. He's capable of doing pretty good things. However, bit of a fragile ego, and he cannot stand insubordination or someone standing up to him or pointing out a mistake he made. Uh, what, what's your kind of take on based on what you know about MacArthur now, just someone who was afraid of having someone in the room who might even come close to being on his level intellectually or maybe uh, willpower-wise. What would you think of MacArthur in that sense? Well, look, he comes across definitely as a narcissist. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't get the sense that he's a, a psychopath. Right. Uh, although I think at some level, generals generally, people sending other people to their death and, and you know, yeah. organising the mass slaughter of people on a battlefield probably do need to have a bit of psychopath in them. Look, you know, I get the idea that, in a, like in a, in a war situation, mm-hmm. if I was thrust into a war, then, you know, I would kill to protect my family and sure. protect my home and my loved ones and my friends and that kind of stuff. You don't have to be a psychopath to go to war. You don't have to be a psychopath mm. to kill to be, but to be somebody who's really good at it, right? And who de- devotes his life to it, I do think you need to be a little bit, at least at some level, uh, um, high up on the psychopath scale. Mm. But you know, from you know the the biographies that I read on him, 
his ability to be magnanimous and to you know to fight injustice and to to uh, do some of the good things that he did, right? Uh, like the not good, but you know the the benevolent things that he did, particularly when he was running Japan. Yes, I don't I don't get the sense that he was a complete psychopath. Definitely a full-on narcissist, right. though. Um, gotcha. You know, he's the the classic narcissist, yeah. like a Trump. You know, just <sighs> needed adulation, yeah. right? He just. Uh, I read and I was reading an article this morning about Trump. Um, as in, in the Economist or something, talking about Trump uh, and what's going on in Mar-a-Lago with him now. Apparently, everywhere he goes at Mar-a-Lago, he goes to the dining room. People stand up and applaud. Everywhere he goes, he gets applauded by people in Mar-a-Lago. Right. And um, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Michael Cohen, his former lawyer, was quoted in this article as saying, Trump needs adulation like the rest of us need oxygen. Yes, God. Like he, um, and that sounds like MacArthur, right? Yeah. He needed that. He needed to surround himself with uh, yes men and, and prostitutes. That, now, yeah, yeah. Mm, sorry. Just real quick, if you ask Trump, hey, can you tell me of something you remember from 40 years ago? You know, because you just were talking yeah. about MacArthur's intellect and his memory. I, I guess Trump would go, yeah, yeah, there was one time. Oh, I remember it was 43 years ago. It was on a Saturday. And so far, you're impressed. You're like, there was this cocktail, cocktail waitress, and she had a tattoo, or was it a mole? It was really cute. It looked like the shit of Florida. Which you know, which is why I moved there. Right here on her hip, sexiest thing in the world. That's what I remember. Uh, business, family, when my children were born. Uh, no, but I can look that up. That's fine. I can look. That up. Yeah, uh, James Caffin on Facebook this morning <laughs> said that he, he's not a big fan of MacArthur, and he right, reminds him of Trump. And I think that's the big difference between these guys. Like. Uh, both narcissists, right. yes, but MacArthur seems to have had a brilliant back intelligence. Up. Yes, yeah. uh, prodigious memory, brilliant intelligence, uh, very well read, very knowledgeable about history. No one's ever mistaken Trump for being uh, uh, knowledgeable, but or well read. I read today Trump was talking about maybe, possibly, he might write <clears throat> the Book of Books. That's an exact quote. I always assumed that was the Bible. Clearly, I was wrong. So hopefully, he will put pen no, no. to paper. He is going to write the Bible yeah. again. <laughs> the, the new Bible. Bible. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. I, anyway, yeah. MacArthur, as we said before, uh, ran Japan mm-hmm. like his personal kingdom. Yes. Um, his office was in the uh, Daiichi Insurance Building, and I know you've been a little bit Daiichi um, when I'm recently. Not, you've had to see a doctor. When I'm not regular. About yeah, it, yeah. of your lumpy phallus <laughs> has been Daiichi. Uh, it's it was okay. the Daiichi Insurance Building uh, was situated across the road from the Emperor's Palace, Damn so we right. could keep an eye on him. Damn right. It had somehow survived the fire bombings of Tokyo during World War Two. His office was and still is yeah, yeah. on the sixth floor of the Daiichi Building. It uh, remains there today untouched because the Japanese are scared that if they touch it, America will nuke them again. So they're they're not going anywhere near it. Uh, Apparently that's what MacArthur told them. You fucking, when he left, you fucking touched one hair in this office. Boom! 
boom. Big boom, boom. <laughs> Big boom, boom. Boom, boom, That's come back. That's all I have to say. Right, right. Yeah. yeah we boom, are, boom, come oh, back. We're horrible. <laughs> boom, boom, come back. <laughs> Same with my backup singers. Ray and the Boom Boom come back. You know, touchy touchy, <laughs> Boom Boom come back. He was a racist piece of shit, basically, MacArthur. That's oh, what I'm saying. Just real quick, I know we're busy. I don't know if we're overtime, but the the um, no. the Audible book version of Max Hastings. It is read by the guy, an English gentleman who I absolutely love. The most clipped, arrogant, act, British accent that you could possibly imagine. I love it though. But but the point is when he does. It's not actually Max Hastings. No, 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 no. When because he's been, he's done a ton of books. When he does voices, or when he says a line that's uh, someone who's Asian or Indian or American or whatever, he'll do the best he can with the accents. But he's so bad at it. I just assume he's a flaming racist. I have no idea, but he'll just do these outrageous um, accents in Japanese. I'm like. Dude, I don't know when you recorded this, but that's not cool anymore. Cancel culture. You can't do that. But anyway, if you, if for those of you who don't have time to well, actually... The book's not that book, old. Huh? No. The book's not that old. But trust me, the guy who reads it does a brilliant job. I absolutely oh, love his voice. Do you know, do you know what his name is? Uh, he actually, he has his real name, obviously, but then he has the state, for lack of a better word, a stage name when he reads the uh, books. I used to know it. I don't know it anymore. Shit. Cameron Stewart. Sounds like a racist. Um, no, <laughs> no, just, no, I guess that's either his real name or his reading name, but the point is I definitely encourage you to check out Max Hastings' uh, audiobook version. You will absolutely love it cruising down the road. <laughs> Why would he have a stage name? The audio, uh, a lot of, the, lot of them, you know, narrator. A lot of the readers really? do that, yeah. Or at least they really? did back in the yeah. 90s and the early 2000s. I don't know about now. Right. Anyway, I'm sorry. Uh, I'll check it out. So, um, yes, you can still go visit, I think by appointment only, but you can go visit sure. MacArthur's office. And, and a friend of mine here in Brisbane po- uh, told me that he has MacArthur's desk from his Brisbane office when he was in Australia. How he, he has it in his house. Did he steal it? He is Aussie. He's an Aussie. <laughs> he, he, he uh, This friend of mine's a barrister, uh, like a, a lawyer. Right. His father was a very high-profile lawyer um, and, I think, um, member of parliament or, no, part of the government here. Right. Might have been the um, minister, the justice minister or the, something like that here. And apparently uh, his father was a big fan of MacArthur's and when MacArthur left, somebody gave Des's father Shit. MacArthur's desk. I got to check that out. And it's still sitting in his house. I offered to buy it. I said, how much do you want for it? And he just laughed yeah, at me. Yeah, so. no. Anyway. Yeah. We're going to go He's probably snorted too much coke off of it anyway. It's just got white lines all over it. That's so. more valuable now. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway, by 1950, as we've said, MacArthur was seven years old. And I think one of the important points to understand here, he was used to being treated as a king. Yes. He was used to being treated with deference, particularly when it came to military decisions. As yeah. you said before, his view was... Once he was, once it was war, he was the boss. Right. Get the fuck, fuck the off. Fuck. No one argue with me. Just fuck right I'm, off. I'm the. Right. Yeah, this is now my domain. Yes. Yeah. He would get into work at ten a.m., leave at two for lunch Podcast. at home. Right. Come back around four thirty. Yeah. And then work until late in the evening, nine o'clock or even later. Never took 
holidays. Never took time off. But 70, not taking time off. No weekends, no public holidays. Didn't take time off. He was a workaholic. Again, yeah. reminds me of Napoleon. Right. Used to work around the clock, never took breaks off. I remember I was telling stories about Julius Caesar. Yes. At some the gladiator yes. trials at the games, fucking working. Dic- fucking dictating, working. Yes. and people were booing him because yeah. he was working at the games. Like, Fuck. Didn't have time. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to run an empire here. You try it sometime, bitch. Yeah. Do you remember? I don't. I remember Stalin's hours during the war, but Churchill had similar hours. Churchill would stay up until late, get up around noon, eat breakfast in bed, read the newspapers, finally get up and do some stuff. But he would stay up late. Where Stalin during the war wouldn't go to bed until 5 a.m., got up at 10 a.m., and then just did the whole thing over again. So just very mm. driven, high-energy, um, focused people who didn't believe in fucking wasting weekends and holidays just get to the work. And they probably loved, to a degree, they loved what they were doing. They loved it. If their that work. makes sense. Yeah. 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 On the 27th of June... He sent a military reconnaissance party from Tokyo, led by Brigadier John Church, Good name. an American officer, right, from Japan to South Korea to check out the military situation there. They were met at the airport by the U.S. Ambassador John Muccio, mm-hmm. taken to a new, nearby school where they were debriefed. Um, and according to one of the officers who was there in the meeting, they were told by the American and South Koreans that... The location of the enemy forces was unknown. Is that important? Do I need to know that? It, it, is, that is that a big deal? Uh, you would think, yeah. Um, the the very same day, right? the very same day when the South Koreans and Americans were telling uh, Church that the location of the enemy was unknown, <laughs> the enemy took Seoul. Now, well, at least now the we know where they're at. North, <laughs> the North Korean People's Army, the NKPA, or the Inmin-gun, right. as they're sometimes referred to, the Inmin-gun, the IMG, they took Seoul. Now, they were meeting in Suwon, which is the region where Seoul is. Right, in that area. Uh, they still didn't know. They could have just looked Look, stick that your, way stick your head out the and window. seen yeah. them. Do you hear that sound? The point is... Pop, 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 pop. Th- yeah. yeah. This is... Several days after the North crossed over the 38th parallel, and they still, like the South and the Americans that are there, still have no idea what's going on. No. They, they're completely, Complete completely clueless. Yes. Completely yes. clueless. Don't even know where yeah. the enemy is. When they're taking the capital, yeah. they don't know. They don't know what's yeah. going on. They'll figure it out. The next day, uh, more U.S. aircraft arrived, some carrying ammunition, and minutes after they left, the airport tarmac was strafed yes. by North Korean planes. Yes. And then not long after the North Korean planes left and stopped strafing the tarmac, right. MacArthur landed. It's because Jesus is looking out for him. Go ahead. Go ahead. On his private jet, the Batam, which yes. he named after his greatest failure. Uh, <laughs> You're not wrong. 
Or, or the way he looks at it, the great reversal of fortune. No, you're right. It's a fucking... This, anyway, I was going to try to spin that. But yeah, uh, literally some two American planes were strafing the enemy troops, land, jump out, head into headquarters. Then their planes get strafed. Those enemy yaks take off a single-seat fighter. They take off. And within minutes later, MacArthur lands with a whole bunch of press. So clearly Jesus, or Jesus, as, as MacArthur called him, was looking out for this guy because he could have he could have died right then and there. But nope. MacArthur's landed, and now he wants a report. Uh, just for people who aren't familiar with the Battle of Bataan, do you want to give a quick high level oh on what how it ended up? Oh, God. Okay, you know, not only will I do that, but I will make MacArthur look bad. So before the war, the American Pentagon, not the Pentagon, the Army Chief of Staff said, if Japan attacks, there's no way we can keep the Philippines. There's, there's no fucking way we can hold it. So we're going to pull everything out. We're going to regroup around Hawaii, yada, yada, yada. MacArthur, he gets a job, a long-term job by K, President Kazon, gets paid a shit ton of money, because I want you to build me an army. So MacArthur comes, he brings his staff, and right away the author, uh, MacArthur's staff is going, this country doesn't have enough money, resources, infrastructure, that you cannot build a modern army. We need to get the fuck out of here if Japan comes. But Mac- MacArthur's like, no, I... I think we can do it just because the Philippine troops have coconut helmets and they're barefoot and they've got uh, rifles from before World War I. I. I think we can whip the Japanese. So he convinces the Pentagon if war comes, we're going to stay and fight. So now he's got roughly 80, 90,000 men. They're trapped. The Japanese come. The Japanese whoop ass because they control the skies. They control the sea lanes. You get uh, the American, mostly Filipino, but a few American units trapped on Bataan for months. And from like January to April, they absolutely starve, barely eating anything. MacArthur's on Corregidor Island. He's not eating much either. I don't want you to think that he was just picking out. But as things are about getting uh, getting very bad, he only visits Bataan once. MacArthur normally is the kind of guy who would be there by your side in the foxhole, encouraging you. But for whatever reason, he only visits Bataan once during the siege. And then he, he makes a big deal out of it. And I my personal opinion is that he forced Roosevelt to order him to leave because he's like, I'm not leaving. I'm going to die with my men. If they die, I die. If they get captured, I get captured. And FDR is like, we can't have a fucking general get captured. That would look horrible. So I ordered you to leave. I think MacArthur knew that was going to happen, which is why he was being brave the entire time. But the whole thing was a clusterfuck. And when MacArthur left Manila to go to Bataan, he forgot to take several million bushels of rice that would have lasted for years. So Okay, okay, okay. You're going into way too much detail. Sorry, he fucked fucked up. I said high level. That was, I've done like 10 episodes so far, so that was high level. Anyways, I, eighty thousand, like like 80, roughly 000. eighty thousand yeah. troops surrendered to the Japanese, yes. American, and Philippines, and went on the Bataan Death March. Yes. But point is, yes. it was a colossal failure. Oh, huge. huge. And then he names his private plane yeah. the Bataan, and <laughs> and his staff was called the Bataan Gang. He would not let that yeah. go. He would not let yeah. that go. But he, I love he it. Saw it. I mean, a, that's that's. He saw it as a great escape. You and I see it as a defeat. He's like, no, I got out of there. I got a bunch of troops and men and ships and planes, and I came I'm back fine. and whipped ass. I'm hey. fine. I'm fine. I'm good. I'm fine. Yeah, look at that. I got out. I even gained a little weight, you know, because he did lose like 20, 25 pounds <laughs> for a while. But, but he's like, no, I'm good. What, what are you bitching about? Oh, those 80,000 people. Oh, that I didn't were have to march anywhere. to death. Yeah. 
Are you going to put that on my record? I just love... Yeah. I just love the temerity of like a colossal failure like that and then trying but, to turn it into a... But that's what he did. Trying to turn it into... He was yes, obsessed with the controlling the narrative, which is why the American people yes. loved him. Because they didn't fucking know any better. He's like, I will do this. Yeah. I got this. I will handle no, it was, this. Yeah. It's like Trump. Yeah, no, no, yeah, I lost. Yeah. I won. I won the election. Yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah. I won. I don't, I don't, I don't <laughs> care about the facts. I won. That's it. Just There's no way. There's no way I could lose to this guy. So ergo here to four... Yeah. I won. I won. I won. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, anyway, MacArthur, MacArthur lands. Uh, he gets met by Muccio right. Re and Church, gets taken to another school where he gets briefed. Then, yes. for eight hours, yes. he drives a Jeep yeah. through the battlefield. Fuck it. I'm MacArthur, bitch. Yeah. All right. Let me go have a look. Right. See what's going yeah. on. Would you drive me? Fuck you, uh, sir. I'm not going to drive <laughs> the Jeep. Yeah. Actually, I like the fact that before he left Tokyo yes. to fly there, he was meeting with journalists and he said, uh, listen, uh, I'm going to be at the airport at 8 o'clock in the morning. Uh, if you're not there to come with me, yeah. I'll just assume that you had more important things right. to do. Yeah. It's fine. And they were like, no, no, we're, we're going to be there. The story. He's like, yeah. He said, I'm just, I'm just giving you an out right. or something like that. Yeah. I, just, I was just giving you an out if you didn't want to <laughs> come. Yes. It's fine. Yeah. You get love it. Anyway, yeah. he drove back to his plane and told the 14 American officers that had gone, gone over with church, the recon outfit, to stay behind right. to put some backbone into the Koreans. Now, can I just... the quote. Real quick. So you bring, your, you bring part of your staff with you, and as you're leaving, by the way, you guys stay here. And help with the fight. You would think um, he might have said, bring a toothbrush, uh, a second pair of underwear, whatever medications you might be taking, backup glasses. Yeah. Uh, he literally, he, it, but, but, but it was dramatic. You guys, stay here and put some backbone into the Koreans. I'll go back. I mean, just fucking over the top Saturday Night Live hero shit. But he loved it, and but, but of course his men had to struggle for a while because they had none of their stuff. It had to be flown over. But he loved gestures like that. It made him look cool. And he flew back to Tokyo. And I just want to finish now yeah. with another, lo- another quote from Manchester because this is great. <clears throat> the situation in Korea was Orwellian. A former ally of the United States, the Soviet Union, was championing a captive state... North Korea, in a conflict in which the South Korean foe was being supported by the United Nations, to which the Russians belonged, while the Soviets, meanwhile, were demanding the right to participate in treaty negotiations with a former enemy of the Americans and the Russians, Japan, which would bring peace between Japan, which was becoming the base for anti-Pyongyang forces, and the United States... Now the Soviets' arch enemy. So <laughs> my eyes crossed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that is the situation at the time, and yeah. where we'll leave this episode, unless you're going to complain and want to jump in there. No, just uh, somehow MacArthur had to please the Pentagon, the UN, Truman, and the South Korean people. Other than that, easy, easy, easy. Descended across the continent.